We are delighted to have the inimitable Sam Coran on today's show. We submitted written questions to Corana. Our frequent co-host, Pauline Schneider, can be will be supplying the voice of Dr. Corana. You can find Corana's blog at arctic-news.blogspot.com. That's arctic-news.blogspot.com. Dr. Corana posts anonymously about abrupt irreversible climate change. To preserve his anonymity, we will refer to her as female, Sam, and Dr. Karana. A caveat is in order. In doing so, we are acknowledging our respect for Karana's work, and we are not indicating Karana's credentials or gender. Dr. Karana, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Karana in the form of Pauline today. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. I have a series of pretty quick questions that I think should generate fairly short answers, and so we'll start with some 
rudimentary information. How long have you been disseminating information about abrupt climate change to the public under the Sam Karana moniker? I've been worried about abrupt global, global warming for a long time, and as time went by, I only became more worried about it. I was stunned to see that when Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S. in 2005, little action followed on climate change. If I had to pick a year when I became particularly active on abrupt climate change, it would be 2007. I wrote a post in early 2007 with the title, 10 Dangers of Global Warming. I mentioned tipping points and the possibility that global warming could drive humans into extinction. In particular, as more animals and plants than humans that humans depend on would disappear. In 2007, I also wrote 10, 10 recommendations to deal with global warming. I started more blogs and groups that year, partially as an inventory and partially as a way to encourage discussion. In 2007, I also started to recommend local fee-baits as the best way to make a difference. In September 2007, I was shocked to see Arctic sea ice fall to a new record low. At that time, I was also looking at how much methane there is in the Arctic Ocean. In those days, few people were worried about loss of Arctic sea ice, let alone that they were worried about eruptions of methane from the seafloor of the Arctic Ocean or that they were making links between the two. And I should point out that that 2007 data point, at the time the lowest ice cover recorded was the last data point Maslowski and colleagues used in their 2012 paper in the annual review of Earth and Planetary Sciences. And they, they used a linear projection based on that information with relatively few data points. And so that 2007 point dragged the rest down mm -hmm. and led to an incorrect too soon projection of 2016 plus or minus three years for an ice-free Arctic. But I don't think they missed by too much, by the way. Okay, next question. Why do you provide this information anyway? How could I not want to share this? It's the most important issue we're all facing, and it's getting very little attention, which makes it self-obvious for me to present the information in the way that I do, quickly, concisely, and with links that point at sources, and without diversions, and without distractions. That's also why I share information on a free blog, without asking fees and without advertising. If you care about the message, then you want people to hear about it. So you don't need to get paid to share the message and you want to reach people without hurdles or diversions. This is something that affects everyone. So the reasons to share it are contained in the message. I feel compelled to share what worries me. After all, it's the most important message ever posted and there is so much urgency to act on the unfolding catastrophe, which could soon leave us no time or room to act at all. Okay, fair enough. But why do you provide this information anonymously? If anonymous means that no author name is added, then I am doing the opposite. I actually do like to add the name Sam Karana when I create content, and I also like to add links to sources 
that makes it easy to find things back, so to see in what context they were used in, etc. But I understand what you mean. I don't like to add further details because I want people to focus on the message rather than on the person who happens to be carrying the message. Adding personal details can result in diversions that can in turn delay the necessary action. Also, I do welcome discussion. When I post on Facebook, people can easily comment and make suggestions, and this can lead to changes that can be made quickly, often instantly. Communication can be quick and direct. I mean, it's easy to take part in discussions on Facebook. There's no need to go through bureaucratic processes or to be wealthy or to be part of an elite or a privileged group. So that makes it more democratic. Before we recorded this interview a couple or three weeks ago, we put out a request to the Nature Bats Last group on Facebook for questions. And Joey Casey submitted this question from that group. Will oceans evaporate? What sort of state do you see Earth becoming in the long term? That's the threat if things keep going as they are now. Earth will become similar to Venus. Well, that's kind of a bummer. You rarely submit to interviews. Why did you agree to join us in this on-air conversation? Just, just as a note, this is. These questions were sent to Sam previously. Okay, I'm just. This is Pauline speaking now. Okay, now I'm now I'm reverting back to Sam. <laughs> just like you, I like to look at the bigger picture. Our conclusions are based on scientific findings and we clearly reference those findings and add links to original sources. And we both have to conclude that there are huge threats. Threats of such a magnitude, severity, and imminence that they make me think, quote, this should be front page news every day, end quote. Yet what happens is this, events are downplayed in the media or they get little or no attention at all. This has now been going on for well over a decade, even as the problems are escalating before our very own eyes. We're all demanding honesty on issues of this importance. So it feels good to be among people who do see the importance of such issues and events and who are familiar enough with them, as well as with my posts to seriously discuss things and comment on my work. So I have been looking forward to this conversation. Now we'll revert to uh, some of the questions that I had for Sam. Have you noticed any evidence of climate change research data being tampered with? Not so much tampering with with data, but what I see a lot is misrepresentation of the data, downplaying of the implications, or simply ignoring things altogether. Most people will never look into the data. Many only read headlines of news reports, or not even that. Politicians have also blocked a lot of research that could have provided precious data that we now lack. This has contributed to the dire situation we're in now, and there still are few data on, say, methane releases in the Arctic. What is also lacking is research into possible action to improve the situation. I have long suggested that politicians who inadequately act 
on the unfolding climate catastrophe should be brought before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, the Netherlands. <laughs> As we watch the collapse of the Arctic sea ice and the meandering jet streams, how concerned are you about further disruption to the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation? One of the biggest dangers I see is that a cool freshwater lid is growing on top of the surface of the North Atlantic near the Arctic Ocean and that this is sealing off hot water underneath the sea surface from the atmosphere. Slowing down of AMOC will result in an increasing amount of hot water accumulating underneath the surface. As storms grow stronger, chances increase that a sudden inflow of hot, salty water will enter the Arctic Ocean and reach sediments at the seafloor that contain huge amounts of methane. And I should point out that that AMOC, sometimes called AMOC, is the Atlantic Meridional Ocean Circulation. So our, our visitors, our listeners, yes. might not be aware of that. So that's, a, that's an important uh, mm -hmm. circulation pattern in the Atlantic Ocean. Recently, there's been a concerted attack on the seminal work of Professor Peter Wattles, especially on the subject of the methane bomb hypothesis. Do you have any doubt at all that this is a real threat? Politicians and news media are often ignoring the temperature rise or downplaying the dangers. Instead, the precautionary principle should be applied, and this should be applied on three dimensions to issues such as methane eruptions from the seafloor of the Arctic Ocean. The first dimension is a matter of magnitude and severity. A vast amount of methane is held in sediments. If just a tiny part of this methane will erupt, this could wipe out humanity, if not make all life on Earth go extinct due to the huge immediate global warming potential of methane and due to the numerous feedbacks. The second dimension is probability. Methane hydrates destabilize as temperature rises. So as temperatures continue to rise, the likelihood grows that such eruptions of methane will occur. The third, the third dimension is imminence. The longer we wait, the more urgent the threat becomes as the temperature rise doesn't wait for us. I want to back up just a little bit and have the three of us discuss, and I'm sorry that Sam isn't here to contribute further to the conversation, but that's the nature of the beast when we have a recorded show in which he's submitting written responses. And Sam indicates that there's not so much, quote, not so much tampering with data. And in, in response to Kevin's question, have you noticed any evidence of climate change research data being tampered with? Not so much tampering with data, but what I see a lot is misrepresentation of the data, downplaying of the implications, or simply ignoring things altogether. Most people never look into the data. That's certainly true. Many only read headlines and news reports, or not even that. So, Kevin... I think you had something specific and important in mind when you asked that question. Can you follow up? We're at the mercy of the same corporations and institutions 
that are collecting this data as to what they're going to give us. As, as the situation becomes more dire and more tenuous, I think we need to question all of that information more and more. I'll give you one example is that in 2012, Nick Breeze interviewed Dr. Natalia Shakova, and her and her partner, Dr. Igor Semilitov, are two of the most experienced Arctic researchers that uh, I know of, including Peter Wadhams and, and Jason Box. When she was in that interview, she teared up as she was telling us about the existential danger that the methane hydrates threatened. This ex extraordinarily experienced scientist teared up and that reflected how dangerous that she thought the situation was then, eight years ago. And then since that, that went public and went viral to a degree as well, Dr. Shakova has really stepped back. She doesn't do any interviews. Uh, her research papers, there's not much coming out. And I think when it is, it's coming out perhaps under Dr. Igor Similitov's name. And I just think she backed up completely because of that. And we saw a similar thing happen with Jason Box afterwards. Jason Box put out a tweet one time saying that if the, if the methane is released from the Arctic, we're fucked. And then he completely has backed up. In, in fact, he said, as well. he said if only a small fraction of the methane is released, we're fucked. Well, so yeah. it, it's even more dire than you just indicated. And you're absolutely right. Since then, he's been backpedaling. As, as if he was looking over a cliff. I think in a lot of ways, uh, you come into, what's happened to you personally comes into this equation for all the other scientists. You put your head above the parapet and said, we're in major trouble. And all you got for it was shit and <laughs> abuse and attack, which is exactly how this patriarchy works. If the patriarchy doesn't agree with what you're saying, it smashes you. Because it's trying to keep itself alive as long as it can, like a leech living off a off a um, a dependent organism. So I think what happened to you is made a whole lot of other scientists much more um, circumspect about delivering their message. Right, and we mentioned Shakova earlier, Dr. Natalia Shakova, and she mentioned the. the possibility of a 50 gigaton burst of methane being highly likely for abrupt release at any time. And a year or two later when asked about that, she said she never said it. Well, you can find the abstract still for the European Geophysical Meeting, for the, sorry, European Geophysical Union meeting in Europe from 2008 when she said that. The abstract is still right there. She clearly, in the presentation and in the abstract, indicated that such an event was highly likely for abrupt release at any time. Mm -hmm. And then later, she lied. She just flat out lied. She didn't retract. The proper scientific approach would have been to retract the statement, which would have involved all of her co-authors in that mm -hmm. presentation and in that abstract agreeing to retract. But she didn't. She just said she never said such a thing. Well, you can look still 12 years later and find out that, in fact, she did say such a thing. It's, it's easy to do that internet search and find it. So, Well, this is Pauline speaking. Um, I, I think she did that deliberately. I think she would have said, we were mistaken 
if she wanted people to stop looking. But I think the fact that she just said a blatant lie that would be easily discovered was basically telling people, I'm being told to lie. You can find the information on your own. It's there. And I, and I think, I mean, look, <laughs> you know, the Ru Russians learn, have learned for many decades to read between the lines. Americans still don't know how to do that. I don't know about the rest of the European countries, but Russians know how to read between the lines. And she was trying to teach us <laughs> how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a very uh, important observation. I'll just make one point that I, I did hear. Um, Peter Wadhams was in, in, interviewed on Environmental Coffee House, and he said when the subject of the 50 gigaton um, methane release, he said hundreds of gigatons, not 50. He thinks it's a lot more, not less. And he points that out on a YouTube channel that gets relatively little attention. And I suspect as a consequence, he doesn't get a lot of negative attention for making statements such as that. N not that in my mind he should be particularly concerned. What's he got well, to lose? He doesn't get a lot, not a lot of negative attention. That changed recently. Right. By a cowboy outfit called Scientist Warning. Hmm. <laughs> who had some adolescents, who weren't scientists, who were just researchers like me, but adolescent ones, and they completely attacked the, the methane hypothesis. There's huge amounts of peer-reviewed data to tell us that it exists. So well, I think there is a concerted campaign, and it will get worse. Mm -hmm. Every single analog is getting worse, so mm -hmm. the attacks will get worse as well. Right, and I feel like we're taking time away from the original topic, but I can't let this go. If scientist warning is not a deep state operation, then I can't imagine what it is. Because every time I receive an email message from Mark Austin, who claims to be, and almost certainly is, an NSA contracted spy, Every time I receive an email message from him, the first person who receives the email message is Stuart Scott. Always. Every single time. Doesn't even matter what the subject is. And Stuart Scott is part of the group doing hit pieces on me. He asked me to submit to an interview with him, so I did, an, an audio interview that lasted several hours and he cut it down to two short pieces, extracting only the parts that made me look like I was in agreement with him or that I didn't look particularly intelligent. And I asked him about it later and he ran screaming from the room, which is no particular surprise. Anyway, so I think that's very disappointing on the part of scientists warning and the, the what I believe is an obvious connection with Mark Austin, the NSA contracted spy, under obviously an alias Mark Austin. Uh, you know, Every single analog is heading in the wrong direction. There's right, re-rising fascism everywhere we go. The situation is incredibly dire. It can only be that they will try and manipulate every situation that they can. 
the, the last two world wars were started with false flags. So of course, psyops will be used to try and control this narrative. Right. They have to keep the people I, calm. I think um, the control of Extinction Rebellion that emanated out of the UK is really quite possibly a, a, a division of that. And I am not attacking the people who are on the streets and who are trying to do anything. But what I will attack is the modus operandi. Um. And that is, is that they're trying to say to people, oh, if we just go out and protest in a slightly different way, it will make it different. Excuse me, these protests are happening in the car driven by Thelma and Louise after it went off the cliff. <laughs> right. And not only that, the, the first demand they make, Extinction Rebellion, is complete honesty by the government. Oh, yeah. That's going to happen. Well, when has any government been honest about almost anything? I can't even imagine that's your first demand and that you're actually counting on that. Right. That's insane. Well, Pauline here again. Um, I think that what you know the deep state does, or the governments of the world do, is they find these small grassroots groups that do seem to have some promise and are going in the direction that they want them to go into and then they support them or steer them further into the direction they want them to go into and if they start veering off then they cut them off. For example, if you just look at all the little movements throughout the last two decades, three decades, the ones that ended up being successful were ridiculous. The ones that failed we're actually on the right track, and I'm talking about Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street was making a difference. It was actually teaching people how to work laterally rather than this, you know, this normal hierarchical pyramid that we're used to. We've got to have a daddy on the top telling us what to do. We need daddy to protect us, to take care of us. That's garbage. Every, every anarchist, every agricultural anarchist for millennia knows that's garbage. We know that's garbage. We don't need a daddy, you don't need a daddy to tell us the right from wrong. As a, as a group of people that care about each other, we know how to take care of each other. But corporations don't want us to do that because they want to monetize all of that. Okay. I'm going to ask the final question for our guest, Sam Carana, and Pauline, you can give the lengthy response, mm -hmm. and I think that will open up some more doors for the three of us to discuss. Okay, let me turn back into Sam, Sam Carana coming back again. <laughs> How would you like to see humanity respond to the predicament of abrupt irreversible climate change? I like everyone to take a good look at how dire the situation is and to act with integrity and compassion. The climate plan that I recommend focuses on government action and prefers implementation through local fee baits. Here are the 10 principles behind the climate plan. One, the precautionary principle which should be applied broadly and on three dimensions as I pointed out before. 
So, regarding severity, probability, and imminence, this should lead to action, not inaction, and such action should aim to reduce the dangers. Number two, relevance. The media often ignore climate change and seek to divert attention to trivial matters. In my posts, I deliberately point at issues that are often overlooked or downplayed, yet that can be extremely relevant in regard to climate change, especially from the perspective of the precautionary principle. In posts, I typically conclude that the situation is dire and calls for immediate, comprehensive, and effective action. Number three, science. Where there is doubt, science-based analysis should be undertaken, and this should include more scientific research where needed. Research should be relevant and to the point. It should continue on an ongoing basis, and it should incorporate the importance of the precautionary principle. Where more scientific research is needed, this should not be interpreted as a reason to delay action, as that would violate the precautionary principle. Number four, healthcare workers typically pledge to, quote, do no harm, unquote. Politicians at the Paris Agreement also pledged to avoid harm. Again, this principle should not be interpreted as a reason to remain passive and to delay action. The precautionary principle makes it imperative for action to be taken. So I like to go one step further and interpret this principle as health is good. <laughs> Number five, global agreement, local implementation. It's great to have global agreement, but implementation can best take place locally. Each community should reach, uh, should reach of their targets independently and genuinely, i.e. without buying or fabricating offsets or credits domestically or abroad. If not, action from government is the respect, oh, I'm sorry, action from government in the respective area and beyond should follow. Number six, democracy. Each individual should take responsibility and be given that responsibility. This means people need to be well informed and made conscious of their responsibility. Where people still don't bother to act responsibly, local fee baits can help everyone becoming effective in combating climate change. Number seven, open information. Share information to enable people to make decisions. I like to make people think. I welcome discussion. Unlike politicians who take decisions out of the hands of people, I like people to decide for themselves, and I like that to be a well-informed and thought-through decision. Number eight, money should not overrule our lives. We should not trade away our principles. Fee baits do not necessarily have to be financial. For example, if a local council adds extra fees to rates for land where soil carbon falls, while using all the revenues for rebates on rates for land where soil carbon rises, then biochar effectively becomes the currency that can help improve the soil's fertility. Its ability to retain water and to support more vegetation. That way, real assets are built. Number nine, the preeminence of principle. 
While it would be nice if there will be a good outcome, we should base our actions on principle. We should act because it is the right thing to do. Number 10, keep an open mind. Be prepared for the unexpected. Be prepared to change your mind if needed. Keep discussing and reconsidering these principles. I've learned that there is still a lot to be learned and discovered. So, that is all. That concludes Sam Karana's responses to our questions. Thank you, Sam, very much. So, Kevin, did you want to respond or did you want me to throw the yeah. first stone? Yeah, I would like to respond to the climate plan. What the climate plan shows is how compassionate, empathetic, and considerate Sam Karana is and how sane. This is, the, the climate plan is the, is the sort of thing you would uh, uh, use or impose in a sane society. But this society is not sane. This culture is insane. I like to often quote uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, quote, there, hang on a second, I've had a, a quick mental block the minute I went to, went to pull it out. It, there is no, uh, it, there's no sign of good health, sorry. There's no sign of good health to be a well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right. I'm sorry, I butchered that, but this is this shows that, that it, it sums up how we got into the situation we're in. It is a profoundly sick culture that has been imposed on most of the people of the world and all of the other organisms, both flora and fauna. So it's no, it should be no surprise to us that we've ended up where we are. Yeah. when you consider the pathology that runs the, the uh, economic system on this planet. Right. Now that you said it, I think the correct quote goes like this. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. In any event, that's exactly where we are. This is a profoundly sick society. The links between governments and corporations have been clearly illustrated for more than 100 years. The existence of a shadowy group of characters in the United States and probably beyond and their influence on governmental decisions has been described for more than 50 years by reliable sources. And all of this indicates that we do not have a, an empathetic, compassionate group of people who are making significant decisions. So that's my biggest issue with the climate plan. On the surface, these 10 steps make perfect sense. But we don't have a society that would allow for implementation of such a plan. I don't know how long Sam has been proposing the climate plan, but it's been a while. It's been long enough that the occasional billionaire knows about it. In fact, they probably all know about it because this is how they make and hold on to their billions is through knowledge. So 
Surely a bunch of people like Bezos and Buffett and Gates know about the climate plan and they choose to, to put their money elsewhere. Probably because they know that the climate plan cannot possibly be implemented and also allow them to retain their enormous privilege. I, I think um, the responses from the billionaires on the planet to this crisis is indicative of how bad it is. They're talking about going to another uninhabitable planet. For pity's sake, these people collectively have trillions of dollars. If money could fix this predicament, there actually is enough money. Oh, absolutely. They could all chip in, whatever it took, if money could do it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that ship sailed many, many, many decades. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And not only that, these are the folks who, hmm, we'll say, have the ear of the governments. <laughs> if, it, if it just meant creating money, which is what we do every day out of thin air, then we would create the money for it, wouldn't we? So I don't think this is a monetary issue at all. I think this is an ethical issue, a profoundly ethical issue that as a consequence, this society will not address because the society is overwhelmingly controlled by sociopaths and psychopaths. Yeah, that was what I was going to interject. It's a mental health issue. Absolutely. These people are very ill. They are very unwell. They're pathologically unwell. And they have their hand on the steering wheel, the accelerator, and the detonator button. People just need to understand how dire the predicament is. And how important, you know, another thing about the, the climate plan is about looking after each other. Right. You know, this is what we've been advocating the whole time that we've been along this journey. Absolutely. These are good old days. Now, they're going away rapidly. Absolutely. You know, Sam quotes, makes a statement about healthcare workers typically pledging to do no harm and politicians at the Paris Agreement also pledged to avoid harm. I was sent a paper today and I immediately threw it in the garbage, the the email garbage, never to be seen again, because the paper in the peer-reviewed literature was indicating that if the global average temperature rises from one to one and a half degrees Celsius above the 1750 baseline, then we're gonna be in trouble. As if that hasn't already happened many years ago. And so here again is the complete disconnect between the compassion shown by the climate plan of Sam Corana and the reality of what's happening out there in the world. Sponsored by the world's governments. Of course, sponsored by the world's governments. But another thing that that, that, uh, discussion you just mentioned brings up is the peer-reviewed literature ignoring the inertia in the climate system. There is a massive lag between how many of the emissions that are in the atmosphere and where we're at today. Talking about, hey, talking about one and a half or two C is complete bullshit, because if you go back to 1750, we're already there. But also, there's a lot of warming, anthropogenic warming before that, just with agriculture and civilization yeah. and, and burning of things. So there's a whole lot of that being ignored. So that just goes to show how institutionalized the peer-reviewed system is. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Okay, I want to take a, an, just another quick look or two at the climate plan. Item six, democracy. Each individual should take responsibility and be given that responsibility. Okay, this means people need to be well informed and made conscious of their responsibility. Pauline, would you care to comment on the notion of democracy and when it was most mm, um, birthed? <laughs> when it was birthed, how long it lasted, <laughs> and how important it was at its time. So um, we all know that Greece is famous for being the cradle of democracy. And, but I think very few people realize that it didn't last very long there. It lasted maybe 10 years. The idea of democracy is different, you know, what is it that you always say? The idea, um, something in action or in, in reality is different from the... Oh, right. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. So, in practice, I mean, in theory it was a wonderful idea and it was really, you know, I think it worked for a little bit, but, but you know, humans are, are like cats and it's like herding cats. and. And I do, I do appreciate this because actually what she meant to write is anarchy. So in anarchy, each person, each individual does accept responsibility, not only for themselves, but for the people around them. That's what anarchy is. Democracy is everybody gets a vote, everybody gets a voice, and we just throw all that into the, the kitty. And you're going to have a mess. And we see that in this country every day. We have, we have a mess of voices. Nobody cares about other people. It's all about me, me, me. But, but she's actually talking about true anarchy, which is people being together, responsibly educated in the facts. Well, you know, Edward Abbey wrote frequently about the correspondence between anarchism and democracy. And he basically said they're the same thing. Do we need more democracy? You bet your sweet Betsy, he says, <laughs> through anarchism. Yeah. Yeah, but everyone has to understand how demo the word democracy is very, very old. But the, the, the version that we have now, this contemporary version, has been bastardized by the monetary system and the corporations. Oh. When I hear the word democracy now, it makes me puke. Because look at the democracy that you have in the United States. It yeah. is the very best democracy that money can buy. <laughs> right. And if you've got the money, you own it. Right, exactly. Or as Paul and Anne Ehrlich wrote in their book, One with Nineveh, many years ago, what we have in this country is socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor. Wow. Because the cap under capitalism, the poor don't make out very well never have right so we socialize any corporation that might come close to failing if it's owned by a one percenter and that's been a point of the videos we've been putting out most mornings lately is that the the links between governments and wealthy people and the corporations they own are solid the links between the governments and small businesses owned by mom and pop on the corner, they aren't nearly so strong. Yep. It's a tragedy. Yep. 
I'll give you an indication of how corrupt it's become in New Zealand. Um, James Shaw is the co-leader of the Green Party in New Zealand. Their policy on their website is that they're opposed to private schooling. Just recently, he signed off on a gift of $12 million to one private school in New Zealand. <laughs> wow, the head of the Green Party of New Zealand is an economist. Um, most people will know about a guy called William Nordhaus, who was an economist, yeah. who set the 2C Rubicon for where we shouldn't cross. It had no basis in science. Zero. It was all basis on what he thought capitalism could get away with. He got a Nobel Peace Prize for that. These are pathological psychopaths yeah. who are making these decisions. Go on, guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. And he made that statement in 1977. We've learned a little bit about climate change since 1977. And he was given the Peace Prize last year, right? 2019? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and in those ensuing 60-some years, we actually learned quite a lot about climate change. Sorry, 40-some years. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is how Orwellian it has become. Yeah. You know... He got a peace prize for guaranteeing the extinction of most of all, if not all, complex life on this planet. And you had a president in your country that got a peace prize for dropping more bombs than anyone else before him. To be fair, he received the peace prize before he dropped all those bombs. Yeah, that was the deal. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I want to make a comment on item seven of the climate plan. Open information. Share information to enable people to make decisions. I like to make people think. I welcome discussion. Unlike politicians who take decisions out of the hands of people, I like people to decide for themselves, and I like that to be a well-informed and well-thought-through decision. Well, he says it right there in item 7. I like to make people think. Unlike politicians who take decisions out of the hands of people, governments don't like people to think. It's really bad for the government when people think. Look at the American Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s. It posed a serious threat to the government, to the continuation of life as normal to the sociopaths, the millionaires at the time, that was a lot of money, who were pulling the strings of empire in the United States. We, we can't have people thinking. That's the worst thing ever to happen to any oligarchy of a country. And so we, th- that's just not going to happen, Sam. I'm sorry. I, I appreciate these great ideas, but the implementation, I just don't see it ever happening in this country or any country in the world because governments throughout the world have pretty much revealed themselves to be all headed in the same direction, which is the direction that the really wealthy people want the, the country to go. Which is fun to get my like that expression that you used when we first met uh, that we're born into captivity. Just like most of the other, most of the living organisms or, or animals on this planet are born into captivity. That's right. I, I read a report the other day that said that we've lost 28%. Sorry, we've lost 68% of the wildlife on the planet. 68% of the wildlife on the planet in the last 50 years. 
And of course, most of them would have been in the last 10 of that 50. Right. And it's accelerating. But as we've discussed many times, the exponential function is something difficult for us to wrap our minds around, any of us, because we are not hardwired that way. Evolution by natural selection did not in any way set us up to deal with the exponential function, to understand it in any by any stretch of the imagination. No. And it is ironic that because of our, our innate nature to be altruistic, that we have allowed sociopaths to survive <laughs> and to take over because our altruistic nature always gives people the benefit of the doubt and believes in the better angels. And unfortunately, we have in the last six millennia changed everything. That doesn't work anymore for us. Once we industrialized, once we went into uh, cities and created, you know, leaders, kings, priests, gods, that was... Uh, county commissioners. Yeah, county commissioners. We are... <laughs> right. I believe that capitalism is a vortex of sociopathy and psychopathy to the top. So the longer it went on, of course, the more unwell and sick the leadership would be. And that's where we're at. We're, you know, in New Zealand, the Green Party members in New Zealand voted an economist to be their co-leader. You know, it's, it's like voting for death. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, right. I, I guess the vote there for all of us is quick or painful. <laughs> quick or painful. The death. Since we're voting for death. Well, I, th I think that, you know, I mean, I, I understand, you know, that we're, a lot of our conversations look at all of these ideas and um, suggestions about what we could do to save our butts. Um, and, you know, we're able to, you know, really critically think our way through them with actual analysis that shows that there's this is not going to happen it hasn't happened in the last 40 years that we've been asking for these things to happen they haven't happened yet einstein reminds us you know if you keep repeating the same thing and expect a different result that's the you know definition of insanity what could we do though there are things that we could do maybe not to save our butts but maybe to have a gentler landing or crash or full, or whatever you want to call it, off the edge. Um, you know, every day we're dealing with people who are homeless or houseless. Every day we're dealing with people who are suffering from terrible diseases that they didn't ask for. Every day people are losing their families, they're losing their jobs, their homes. I mean, I, I feel like what we could ask our governments to do is to address that. I mean, that would be a, a real thing they could do. Um, instead, you know, in this country, people still have this idea that you can lift yourself up by your bootstraps. And we've known from history, anyone with any sociological background knows that's, that's not a real thing. That's it's virtually impossible. Doesn't happen. You, nobody gets it. Not even, not even the billionaires 
they have not gotten there by their bootstraps. They've gotten there on the backs of people. Oh, and they make money the old-fashioned way. They <laughs> inherit it. <laughs> That's the way yeah. it works. And I'd, I'd like to spend a few minutes. Mm -hmm. it, um, first, I want to make sure that we're done wrapping up yeah. the conversation for today. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about Ken Avador, next month's guest. Yes. And put out the call to our listeners for questions for an artist. That'd be great. We have five minutes left in our show, so we totally have time to do that. So Ken Avador is a wonderful artist. He has published at least two books, two books that I've seen, books of graphic art, arts, mm -hmm. and he has a YouTube channel. And he puts out the most poignant videos. I just watched one called The Nose or A Nose or Following the Nose. I can't remember what, it, within the last three or four days. And that's, that's my mind going yes. rapidly now. And yeah. just five minutes so poignant so sad such a great message mm -hmm. that he put out in a short period of time this is what artists do artists cause you to think differently artists are not crafts art is not craft craftspeople are not artists craftspeople build chairs and tables and they're beautiful and maybe even guitars artists change the way you think about something, change the way, change your emotions. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. sorry, I went off on a little ramble there. <laughs> Do we, does either of you have a thought about Ken Avador, our next guest for the November show? Kevin? If you want to go to uh, Ken's um, YouTube channel and look at the wonderful um, presentations that he's made in a couple on extinction, he's a very, very talented man. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and uh, I have watched his videos over the last few years, um, and they're wonderful. They're you know he he's a sketch artist and does beautiful work, um, and you know he has he has done a, a wonderful sketch of Guy, so it's of course you know dear to my heart. <laughs> uh, but I but I really appreciate that um, you know he's. He's done, I think he's done the emotional work on this, and it's pretty, pretty tough stuff. And, it, you know, a lot of people can't go there. Um, it takes a lot of time and meditation to understand what near-term human extinction is. And I, and I think he's done a really, really good job of it, and I think he's um, depicted it quite fairly. You know, interestingly, he has a couple of daughters, and when he put out his his 2001 book, he indicated in the book that we were going extinct in the near term, like 70 years. And that shouldn't come as any surprise. That's what almost everybody I talk to does, is they put it just at the end of their life. Right. <laughs> or just beyond the end of their natural life. Right. And so it wasn't a particular surprise to him when he came across my work, mm -hmm. and he realized that he'd been off by a few decades. It's still not bad, really. He's an artist. Yeah. And this is not what he spends his time thinking about, obviously, mm -hmm. or conducting research on. His YouTube channel is called Bicyclopolis. It's spelled like bicycle, except in, instead of ending with an E, bicycle with an E, it ends with opolis, as in metropolitan area. Opolis. So, o Bicyclopolis. Yeah. O-P-O-L-I-S. 
and it's a wonderful channel if you haven't checked it out it's well worth spending some time there and we'll be doing that show live so we'll be taking your comments and questions throughout the show so take a look at some of Ken Avador's work and be prepared to fire questions at us that'll make for a very interesting conversation I think yeah people can ask about us and more artists who are are on this um, uh, journey to chip in so any any of the artists who follow our show I'd love for them to call in and, and be a part of it exactly and and his technique is so interesting and unique and quite beautiful and he does uh, well before before the pandemic um, they would go out in groups of artists to sketch the city and cafes and you know various various sites where he lives and and they're wonderful they're, if you if you followed him on Instagram they're uh, they're they're quite beautiful the work is shared and it's just it's fantastic so it's a lot of fun he lives in pretty much the middle of the United States Indiana in a large city so he has access to a lot of artists mm -hmm. like-minded people mm -hmm. and it's also a beautiful location yep yep so I think we're ready why don't you take us home, Kevin? Thanks for listening to today's pre-recorded show. You can catch NBL on PRN on the first Tuesday afternoon of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The next episode is scheduled to broadcast live on November 3rd in the United States with Ken Avedor as our guest. If you missed the broadcast, you can find the shows at the archives at prn.fm, the Podbeam, or at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow The Nature Bat's last blog, GuyMcPherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours, and you can keep current with my work at KevinHester.live. Thanks again to our guest, Sam Karana, our listeners, and also to Afrazine for his music. Until next time, remember that dominant culture has been clever, been very clever, but in the end... Nature bats last. She bats last and she's coming out swinging.